This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company I've used personally for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount. Before I get to that, I want to highlight a couple of products. So footwear has been a big issue, and we all know that these heavy-duty work boots cause a lot of issues with joint health and fatigue. Listening to the responders in the field, the military in the field, 511 have reverse engineered and created some incredible footwear that is much more lightweight, just as durable, and minimizes both fatigue and damage to the joints. One of those is the Norris sneaker. I have a pair of those myself. They are incredible. And the other one is the AT trainer that has the Atlas system, which spreads the weight of the load over the entire foot, thus reducing fatigue and long-term damage. Aside from footwear, they have the backpacks. I have the AMP pack myself. Their civilian clothes, the jeans, the shorts, I absolutely live in these days. The flashlights are some of the brightest I've seen, and they last an incredibly long time on one charge. The list goes on and on. Now, because 5.11 cares about you, the tactical population, they are offering you a discount of 15% on every purchase that you make. So go to 5.11 Tactical, use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, and save 15% every time you shop. And if you want to learn even more about the company, listen to episode 338 with co-founder and CEO Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by GovX. And as you know, I only have companies on here that I truly use and believe in myself. And GovX is a complete no-brainer. If you are a member of fire, police, EMS, corrections, military, and even hospital setting doctors and nurses, you qualify for the free membership to GovX, which marries us with discounts from so many companies that you probably already use. 
And on top of that, it's not just for active duty, but also retirees, veterans, and volunteers. So for our professions, having to purchase so much of our equipment, every single dollar counts. And understanding that, GovX has reached out to you, the Behind the Shield podcast audience, to offer you an additional saving. On your first purchase of $50 or more, if you use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, they will give you an additional $15 off your first purchase. And another layer of GovX is GovX gives back. Every month they're going to sell a different patch and the proceeds from that patch goes to a charity that supports either first responders or military. So as I mentioned before, go to GovX.com, G-O-V-X.com, register for your free membership and save every single time you purchase. Welcome to episode 389 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute pleasure to welcome on the show Captain John Cordell. So we discuss a host of topics in this conversation from his time on the USS Cole and during Operation Iraqi Freedom to how he found himself immersed in sleep medicine when addressing shifts and sleep deprivation in the Navy. Now, for many of you listening, every so often people reach out and say, is there research on sleep deprivation in the fire service? And I always send people to conversations like this. Even though we haven't done a lot of research in our profession or law enforcement, if you expand out to the military, to the sporting community, you have exact parallels. So I urge people to listen to this conversation. Before we get to that interview, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback. I love reading your feedback and leave a rating. Each five-star rating elevates this project, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, the audience, individually, organizationally. So all I ask in return is that you help pay it forward and share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Captain John Cordell. Enjoy. John, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. No, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. Brilliant. So where on planet Earth are we finding you this evening? I am uh, in Chesapeake, Virginia. Um, it's about uh, 60 degrees outside. Just had a nice walk and uh, just enjoying the weather in the fall. Beautiful. Well, this is uh, election evening, so I'm so glad that we're having an intelligent conversation instead. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for this. Um, all right. So I'd love to start at the very beginning chronologically. So tell me about where you were born and then what your family dynamic was, what your parents did and how many siblings. Okay. Um, I was a Navy brat. So uh, uh, born in uh, Knoxville, Tennessee. My father was uh, in the Navy for 30 years. And so we moved all over the place from Virginia, Pennsylvania, Nevada, California, uh, settled back in Rome, Georgia, which was his hometown. My mother was a school teacher. And uh, um, when my dad retired, uh, that was about time for me to figure out what I wanted to do. And uh, I was in Rome, Georgia, and I kind of decided I wanted to go somewhere else. And uh, my recollection was my dad offered me the basement for 500 bucks a month, uh, eat dinner with the family every night, and be home by 10 o'clock every evening. Uh, or uh, join the Navy. And so uh, 
I filled out my application for the Naval Academy and got accepted. And, uh, and that was sort of where I uh, launched my, uh, my Navy career. Beautiful. Now, what about um, athletics? Were you a sportsman when you were a kid? No. Um, I made multiple attempts to play different sports, all of which ended badly, um, including scoring the winning basket for the wrong team in the church basketball league. So I shifted <laughs> to uh, uh, glee club and, and uh, singing and did that. Uh, my grandfather had advised me uh, when I went to Annapolis that the glee club is, is really good. And it turned out to be the best thing that I could have thought of. The, uh, uh, they traveled uh, even the first year, but normally you don't get to travel. So we traveled all over the states doing recruiting tours, uh, did some uh, special events there, and then have found ways to do that you know, throughout my uh, life in different choral groups. So that was sort of my outlet there. And uh, studied ocean engineering and then uh, decided to go into the surface uh, Navy uh, drive, uh, on surface ships and the nuclear power pipeline. Beautiful. Well, you mentioned about being given an ultimatum seller or Navy, which is interesting. Um, prior to that, had you dreamt of doing anything else as a profession? You know, um, not really. I think not necessarily. Uh, I just it was uh, wasn't on my priority list. Uh, I was in a rock band and uh, that was eating up most of my free time and my dad pretty much put the application on the table and said, you can leave the house when you fill this out. And so uh, that's what I did. I know the Navy was all I knew since I was a kid. So um, did that. At one point, um, I looked at medical school and then I came home for some time and spent a weekend with a doctor and followed him around and realized that he those are the only people that sleep less than, than in the Navy and, uh, and decided that I wasn't looking at that for the right reasons so i re-upped and uh, went back to ships again beautiful it's funny that that sleep would be a focus for that decision and obviously a big element of your work later in life yeah it was that and uh i mean what a demanding he was a heart surgeon and so just the thought of that, that level of responsibility just sort of overwhelmed me i think but uh, but that was definitely part of it he told me be here at 5 a.m and uh and you'll leave when i leave and uh, both nights it was it was pretty late, so uh, <laughs> cut into my free time. All right. Well, then, what about um, when you were in the service doing, um, you know, well, initially going through the glee clubs, did that ignite any flame for you to be a professional musician and, and transition out of the military, or did it kind of actually reinforce you staying in? No, um, I, I certainly wasn't really that good. It was just more of something I enjoyed, and it was sort of a, fright, a free time sort of outlet. Um and uh but it was good to have something to do you know as a hobby uh to, to kind of relax after work but uh no i've always enjoyed it but it's never really looked in, into it as a profession right so then what about as far as you know job description within the navy what was the the kind of route that you took specifically um so it was basically surface ships um, at the time we had a nuclear powered uh, smaller ships now it's just aircraft carriers and so essentially in the navy when you come out of the academy you have really three main, well, four main choices. You can uh, go surface ships, you can go nuclear submarines, um, or you can go aviation and go to flight school. It's sort of the, uh, you know, the Pensacola uh, Top Gun type uh, path. And uh, as part of your time at Annapolis, you spend about uh, maybe a month each summer looking at each of those. So they send you out on a submarine down to flight school. You get a taste of all those different areas. 
but my dad was on multiple ships and that's kind of what I knew. Uh, I decided pretty early on that I'm not a fan of altitude, uh, nor speed. So, uh, so flying planes, every time I went up, I got airsick and, and didn't like it. So, uh, that really wasn't on the list and submarines go underwater. So that was off the list. And, uh, and so surface ships was it kind of the whole time. And then I had decent grades and they kind of recruited pretty heavily for nuclear power, um, which is another post, uh, uh, sort of a year long pipeline training pipeline. And, uh, you know, at the time this was 1984, uh, I was pretty sure that after a career in the Navy, I could retire into, an all nuclear energy industry that was going to be what the United States looked like in, uh, you know, 30 years later, but, uh, obviously got that kind of wrong, but, uh, but it was good, good, good path. It taught me a lot of good engineering practice and, uh, um, and it certainly led to some opportunities, you know, in other places as well. Right. Well then it, early in your career when you didn't have much rank to kind of, you know, have us pull, what did the shifts, what did the, the sleep deprivation element, um, and how did that factor in when you were a young seaman? So um, coming out of the academy, the first uh, interaction was the nuclear power program. And uh, you go to school basically for six months, which is kind of like sort of a graduate level college environment. Um, and then you went off to what they call the training prototype. So essentially it was like a fake ship um, with all the bells and whistles that you stood watching and operated the equipment. And in that one, it was shift work. So that was my first experience where it was uh, pretty much 12-hour shifts. You worked seven days from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Then you had like 24 hours off, 36 hours off. You came back in, went noon to midnight for seven days. Then you had a couple days off, and then you went from uh, 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. for seven days. And then you just sort of crashed for a four-day weekend and then started all over again. And that went on for six months. So uh, – the result was you were just tired all the time, um, you know. So that's that was my first introduction to this uh, this lifestyle. And were there any kind of rudimentary elements of awareness of sleep deprivation or you know sleep medicine back then? Uh, I, you know, I don't think so. I don't think we really. You just sort of slug it out. You know, you put blankets up in your room and uh, to sleep during the day when you head off during the day shift when you're on working the night shift and come home. Uh, we were young enough that, uh, you know, sleep sometimes was optional when it came down to whether to, whether to sleep or go out. Um, and uh, so, no, I don't think it really wasn't something that we consciously looked at. It was just you sort of accepted it. It was kind of the way things are. All right. So from that position, you know, you, you were working on the, uh, the mock ship. You know, lead me through the early part of your career. So from there, some more training and then out to uh, – Coronado, California, to surface warfare school. Um, and then a typical career in the surface Navy is you do two different ship tours, about three, two to three years each. Um, I was in the engineering department because these were nuclear-powered ships. So essentially, um, my jobs were in main propulsion and damage control. So uh, so kind of like you, my second uh, job after uh, on my second ship was in charge of the, of the shipboard firefighting teams. Um, so went through a lot of training, a lot of shore-based training on that. Uh, the Navy has some great shipboard simulators on, uh, on how to do firefighting. And uh, so most of my time was spent in engineering plants, uh, either standing watch, which is, you know, essentially you're at a control panel uh, controlling the nuclear reactor um, and the team that runs it, or out in the engine room. It was a steam-driven uh, uh, ship. 
uh, USS California, USS Truxton. They were cruisers about 600 feet long, about a 600 person crew. And, uh, and we did, you know, I think in that period we did three or four deployments, uh, a deployment in the Navy is probably between six and nine months uh, underway. Uh, one of them all the way around the world, as a matter of fact. Um, and the, the cool thing about the nuclear ships is you never had to stop for gas. <laughs> well, speaking of that, so with, with the onboard ship firefighting, um, what idiosyncrasies were there when it's a nuclear-powered vessel? Right. Well, certainly um, there were firefighting systems that were designed to uh, to cool um, with fresh water. And, uh, and the reactors are very much self-enclosed and have their own sort of firefighting systems. And then the rest of the ship has about four different systems. There's a, uh, there's a saltwater fire main system that runs throughout the ship, basically just a giant pipe with taps throughout the ship that pulls from the ocean. So the, the supply is unlimited. Um, in the plants, they use a uh, firefighting called halon. It's like a gas um, that puts out the, displaces the oxygen. Um, and then they have a, a, this stuff called aqueous firefighting foam, which is sort of a, it's almost like soap that just covers everything. And that's for like uh, main space fires, like oil and gas to, suff- to, to basically suffocate the fire. Well, we hear a lot of civilians that, you know, in the Navy, everyone's a firefighter. So what's the differentiation between the assigned firefighters and then, I guess, the first responder firefighter and the rest of the ship? Oh, okay. Uh, no, so that's definitely the case. Every every sailor has to learn firefighting from, from the uh, – I think uh, most of us go to a, at least a one-day school every few years, three to five years uh, as a refresher um, for everyone, from the captain down to the, uh, to the seaman. And uh, and to learn new techniques and, and sort of get get a little bit of practice because they use real fire um, and and they sort of put you under stress. Um, but there is a core on a ship that size, probably about twenty uh, career firefighters. So they're strictly um, excuse me, strictly fighting fires. And the other piece is we call damage control. So the other thing about a ship that's different from a from a building is the ship can sink, and so. You have to be trained. Uh, flooding is as big a threat as uh, as firefighting, uh, either way, and uh, and there's no place to go. So you know you either save your ship, or uh, or you're in the water. So it's definitely a motivational uh, piece uh, to know your stuff, and uh, and so that's why everybody kind of has to pull their own uh, pull their own weight. Yeah, well, what, you mentioned it before we start recording. What was your you know, just your lens, your your uh, observation of the fire we had in San Diego not too long ago. Oh, um, just, you know, it was pretty far away. But uh, from, from what I saw, you know, anytime a ship like that catches fire, it's a, it's a tough fight because it, it's dark. Uh, even on a ship that you know well, you can lose your way around it. And so when you think about those sailors going in over and over again, the civilian firefighters, um and uh, you know, unfortunately, I mean, I think you can correct me if you if I'm wrong, but uh, my understanding, uh, if you're a civilian firefighter and you show up to a house and you see that there's no one inside, there's no no occupants, no animals, uh, and the fire is kind of involved, you're gonna you know block off the neighbors' houses and kind of let the house burn down. Um, you don't have that option with a ship, and so you know these folks went back in over and over and over again, and so really a testament to their uh, bravery and their uh, and their resilience. Absolutely. Well, I know I heard, I heard you in one of the interviews talking about doing uh, an exchange with uh, um, through NATO at the a German Naval Academy. So tell me how that came about. Oh, okay. So after that, um, 
that's when I had my phase where I thought I might want to be a doctor or do something else. Um, and, uh, but as my sister said, I was simply too lazy to look for another job. So, um, the Navy offered me, uh, a, I applied for a program for graduate school overseas and, uh, didn't get in, but they offered me, uh, an option, graduate school or overseas. And, uh, you know, I was single, I had been, uh, done a lot of deployments and I said, you know, I'd like to go over to, uh, to Europe. Uh, so the, the funny thing was I took French all through the Naval Academy and uh, I asked to go to France. And then in the Navy, you get these things called orders. It's just a message that comes out that says you now detach from this ship and go to this station for your next two years. So I got orders to Germany and uh, I called uh, my personnel. They call a detailer. He's the person who cuts orders, uh, sends you places and manages the community. Right. To make sure your career is tracking and he fills all of his uh, all of his jobs. And I called him uh, from a little island called Diego Garcia, which is in the middle of the Indian Ocean. And uh, I said, hey, uh, I'm, I'm excited to go to Germany, but I don't speak German. Um, and he goes, yeah, you do. And I said, no, I'm pretty sure I don't. <laughs> I uh, should know. <laughs> <laughs> I would know. And, uh, and he goes, oh, crap, hang on. And you hear some typing in the background. And he goes, uh, you took French, didn't you? I said, yeah. He goes, OK, well, what if we sent you to Monterey, California for nine months to learn German and then two years in Germany? Um, and, uh, here I am on my third, you know, seven month deployment and that sounded pretty darn good. So, uh, literally got back on a, uh, on a Friday, drove to Monterey and started class on Monday from scratch. You know, my German was sort of Hogan's heroes. Um, and, uh, the Navy has a very nice program called uh, defense language training, where if there's a need for blank linguists, uh, it's an immersion program for nine months for German. Remember, this is back before the wall came down, right? So um, uh, there was a need for that skill set. And so I was an exchange officer with the German Navy for two years, um, which was a really, really mind-opening uh, experience. So that was when it was still separated east and west? Uh, it was. When I went there, actually, I'm trying to think. No, it was right after. So the wall came in 89 and I guess I started my training in 90 and got there in 91. So it was still very much, it wasn't really east and west, but it kind of was. Uh, the navies had not really come completely together at that point. And uh, I was in a little town called Flensburg, Germany, which is at the very northern border with Denmark. And uh, um, got to town, went out to look for a beer, saw a sign that said Brauerei. Um, I said, hey, nine months of German, and uh, I can recognize that. So I went in there. Um, the waitress couldn't understand me, so she brought a, a, a girl over to, uh, to translate um, who spoke to me in Danish because um, she thought my German was bad. He must be Danish So uh, since that's on the border there. So long story short, that's my wife, Gudrun, um, who uh, we finally figured out that we could both speak a little bit of English and, uh, uh, and German together. And uh, so uh, met over there, married over there, and uh, just celebrated 27 years here. Amazing. Last week. Well, happy anniversary. Yeah. Thanks. Um, so interesting thing then. So I've, I've had this like personally, well, I lived in Japan a few years ago. I say a few, probably, God, it was almost 20 years ago now. Um, but I had a, a very long story short. I had a very interesting perspective where I noticed a lot of the older Japanese were, you, know, you could tell, very, had an out outward anti-American sentiment and understandably so and when they discovered that I was English that it changed completely because they didn't you know they didn't uh, join that with obviously the you know the war so much and the bombs but 
it what was it like for you being American going into a country that obviously are you know our allies now um but not too long after that where there was you know still that division like you said the wall had just come down did you see any kind of animosity from some of the older Germans or or was it past that point uh no it was it was past that point my neighbor um I still remember Mr. Lubomirsky, probably in his 70s, older gentleman, had uh, had parachuted uh, into France one time and then got captured and spent the war in a prison camp and, uh, you know, had, had had some interesting stories. And, uh, no, I would say in general at that point it was uh, – you were sort of like a novelty, right? Um, I mean, certainly they had their, uh, their opinions, but overall very much acceptance. And then – I got two opportunities that were kind of neat. I got to go cross tech or go go underway on a, a ship that had been an East German ship with an East German officer, stayed with their family. Now, their children, um, this was in um, Rostock, which is over on the uh, pretty far over on the eastern side of Germany, um, had been really kind of taught to be afraid of Americans. So uh, um, they were very cautious when we uh, showed up for dinner. And uh, but with my now wife, uh, you know, she sort of broke the ice. And by the end of the night, we were just playing. They were just kids. And I was just some guy who was over there to, to throw them around. So it was interesting to kind of break through that. Um, but uh, this officer still had his West, his East German uniform in the closet. He had his, you know, was very much attached to his heritage. Um, and uh, they had a program to bring the military over from the East into the West. And, and that was going on when I was over there as well. So. Um, again, kind of a cultural difference that was in the process of being broken down. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's just crazy to think about a country literally being divided into like it was after World War II. Does your wife have any stories or anecdotes about, you know, beautiful stories of liberation or anything like that once the wall did come down? No, not really. Um, she was uh, she was there, but she was, you know, Flensburg is kind of pretty far over on the western side, and she's half Danish. Um so uh, I think, uh, you know, other than just sort of the disbelief, nobody really believed it was really going to happen. But, uh, no, I kind of got out there after all the cool stories were over. <laughs> all right. Well, then, um, correct me if I'm wrong, was the uh, Oscar Austin next? Was that, was that when you became captain and then went over to the Middle East? No, there's a few ships. You know, generally, the progression in the Navy is you do what's called a division officer tour, which is sort of your first uh, uh, position. Um, that was ships in California. Then you do what's called an apartment head tour. Um, from a rank perspective, you've been in 10 years and you're usually like a lieutenant, it's called, like a captain in the Army. Um, and then lieutenant commander is called the, is an executive officer tour. Uh, my tour there was the USS Cole. Um, and uh, so I did that uh, and um, left that ship in March of 2000, which is about uh, six months before they were attacked in Yemen. Uh, so interestingly, just today, I was at the Cole Memorial on the base here and reading the names of some shipmates that had, uh, you know, this is the 20 year anniversary of that event uh, this month, October 12th. So uh, um, sort of took me back a little bit, but that was in between. And then the next one is uh, is a command tour. So usually at about the 20 year point is when you get uh, uh, some some folks get a smaller ship when they're more junior. But uh, the, the normal path is about 20 years uh, 18 to 20 years before you're in command. Right. Well, speaking of that, with it being the anniversary and with, you know, a lot of us, you know, the lot of us, I'm old, but some of the, the other audience being younger, if you wouldn't mind, can you tell the story of the USS Cole and, you know, the, the casualties and who was behind it just so we can kind of, you know, pull that out of history and into current day again? 
Sure, sure. It definitely, you know, it, it is often sort of uh, a wake-up call to realize that the sailors coming in today weren't born yet at that time, right? Um, but uh, and it's tough to think about. Remember, this was 19, this was you know the, the late nineties, early two thousands. Um, Americans overseas, you know, were pretty much invincible. I mean, really, there was uh, the wall had come down. Uh, the Soviet Union had kind of fallen apart, and and we really felt like we were sort of the, the big folks on the block. And so, uh, a lot of engagement port visits and things like that, and you have security, um, but you kind of had this feeling of invincibility. And then, so the USS Cole on deployment uh, pulls into Yemen um, to refuel a uh, um, small boat, which is not not that unusual. Because uh, you bring, you know, they come out to get garbage, they bring water, they, they, they bring supplies. Um, usually a private company with small boats came out. So it's very normal to have those types of traffic around. And uh, I want to say it was, lunch, it was lunchtime. Um, they were setting up the refueling barge on one side of the ship. And literally kind of out of nowhere, this small boat sort of came up as if it was going to bring garbage, pick up garbage or bring something alongside Someone in the bow stood up and saluted, and they drove into the ship and uh, exploded. Knocked a hole about 20 feet wide on the water line, um, right next to the mess line, where the, the lunch area where people were eating. And so uh, um, some of the engine room was flooded. Uh, so in seconds, the ship is rocked. Uh, this is a huge explosion. You can look it up online and see the hole and stuff. Um, almost sunk the ship, and it was really the firefighting efforts and the damage control efforts of the crew that, uh, that really saved the day. Um, and there were other ships in the vicinity, but they were not allowed to come in. We didn't know whether this was a wartime attack or something else. So it took a while. The crew was on their own for almost, uh, I would say, the first day just about fighting this fire and, and, and fighting flooding throughout the ship. Yeah, and, and, um, and who was behind that in the end? Uh, this was Al-Qaeda. That's what um, I thought, yeah. Pre, you know, obviously 9-11. And so... Um, you know, this was, uh, it's hard to think about this, but at the time, there was a lot of speculation as to what kind of a threat they were. Uh, were they a threat just over there or over here? Um, and uh, I still remember Captain Lippold, uh, who I served under, um, was in the Pentagon on 9-11 giving a briefing about the coal attack. And, and part of that briefing was, uh, hey, th these folks aren't done with us. And uh, literally, he sort of walks out to the parking lot and here comes the plane. Um, and so... Uh, Certainly, uh, you know, rough time. Um, and, and looking back at it, uh, 17 sailors lost their lives that day. A lot of folks injured. Um, and uh, and so, you know, quite a wake-up call. So since then, that was a real turning point. Uh, whereas uh, that was the time every sailor was a damage control. That was goes all the way back into the 80s. Um, but after coal, every sailor became uh, a force protection asset with training in guns and and with more training, and so a larger portion of the crew became uh, uh, very proficient in weapons training and self-defense and things like that. Right. Well, speaking of 9-11, of so, you know, where were you when, when that took place and, and what was the response from where you were? Um, I was in Norfolk. I was actually about to report to the Oscar Austin as the uh, commanding officer, but I was still in training. Uh, I was watching TV up over in the room over the garage, and I just saw it, and you, you heard about a plane hitting, um, thought it was just a, an accident or something, and then turn on the TV and watch the second plane hit. Uh, and I still remember my wife and I just fell to the floor. We couldn't believe it. And uh, and so I called up and, and you know, really didn't have a, 
a formal position then and just sort of helped out with some of the initial planning. A lot of the ships got underway and headed up to, uh, to set up a defense perimeter. Um, and so helped a little bit with that. And then, you know, as soon as things sort of got a little bit back to normal, reported to the ship and, and took command. Right. And then I know that you responded to Operation um, Enduring Freedom. It's going to be Operation Iraqi Freedom, excuse me. Um, so tell me about how that, you know, the naval element or, you know, especially your ship specifically, um, you know, how that played in. Okay. Um, well, pretty much, uh, you know, we deployed just about everything over there. And uh, there was a big buildup, as you might recall. And uh, nobody knew whether it was going to be an amphibious invasion or, or land. Um, our role was uh, was kind of weird. We, uh, we got a call to go to a place called Abu Dhabi. Um, and I looked at the map and I had never heard of it. I had no idea how to get there. Um, but we, we trucked up into the Gulf as fast as we could go, pulled into port, and, uh, and then were told to get underway very quickly. And, uh, and then that night we ended up launching some Tomahawks that were, uh, these are the land based, uh, ship based land attack missiles that, uh, sort of broke down the communications grid and, uh, sort of paved the way for the, uh, for the army and the Marines to come into uh, the way to Baghdad. So uh, that's where I was that night. I still remember standing up on the bridge. There were ships probably so close you could walk from one to the next as far as you could see. And then around uh, midnight, uh, we all started launching Tomahawks. And uh, I can send you a link. There's a YouTube video that the crew made that's still kind of out there um, set to music. Um, but uh, I think we launched something on the order of 15 there were several hundred that night, but what's kind of cool is um, they all went through the same, at that point, the same flight path to go up the river to Baghdad. And so you, we, we launched a bunch and then we went down to look at our radar and there's literally 150 little dots moving up towards Baghdad. Um, and you could see on the news, uh, uh, Christine Amanpour was on CNN saying, oh, here's another quiet night in Baghdad, nothing going on here. And... Uh, Across the ship, there's a radar picture showing hundreds of tomahawks inbound and uh, pretty much lit everything up that evening. So it was a, definitely a, uh, a life-changing experience. Absolutely. Now, with you know, 9-11 obviously being al-Qaeda, um, were you able to, to do anything in Afghanistan as well? I mean, obviously, you know, it's, it's uh, not known for its water access, but did you have any capacity? No, um, we didn't. Uh, you know, I was on a different tour uh, when that uh, came up. And, uh, you know, the other thing was that, uh, you know, the Navy did do a huge piece um, of war fighting in Afghanistan, probably not that well known, but we did what was called, uh, oh, PRT, something reconstruction team. So they got a lot of Navy folks um, went through training and, uh, and got a machine gun and went over there and led some of these reconstruction teams to go out and amongst the 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 uh, folks there to uh, to help with sort of the uh, what do you call it sort of the counterinsurgency uh, stuff. So a lot of Navy folks uh, over there, you know, fighting, injured, killed, um, totally out of our element. But it was part of sort of the joint, you know, being being one team, one fight for the military. Um, so interesting times. My timing didn't work out for that uh, as the nuclear training uh, pipeline. Uh, there's not a lot of folks that, that stick around long enough, so there really wasn't much trade space there. Um, and back to my lack of athletic ability, it probably wasn't the best fit for me anyway. So uh, um, I, uh, I, my timing wasn't right for it. But we did, a lot of my friends went over there 
Navy friend. So at, at this point, you'd had, you know, obviously some quote unquote peacetime, you know, leadership. And then, and then you were able to, to lead in war as well. At that point earlier in your career, had you noticed then any impact of, you know, sleep deprivation and, and shift work, um, you know, leading up to them? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I sort of went back and, 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 and brushed over it, but, uh, you know, for those tours, the first three or four ships I was on, I was basically a watchstander. And so if there's uh, whatever the, the watch station is, there's always a human in the chair. And then so there were three of us. And so we had to rotate. And a uh, typical rotation there was five hours on watch, uh, followed by 10 hours off and then five hours on. And if you map that out, you'll see two things. One, uh, you always sleep a different time every night. So you might be on watch from 10 p.m. to 3 a.m. one night. And the next night, you come on watch at 3 a.m. So you're always sleeping at odd times. The other thing we did was we very much stuck to a standard workday routine. So no matter what you did that night, Reveille was at 6, lights came on, you know, uh, first meeting of the day was at 7, 7.30, um, and you worked up until about 10 o'clock at night. And then so that was not unfrequent, uh, infrequent to go 24 hours, 36 hours without any sleep or catch a nap in between. And so you just sort of steadied out. Um, but at the time, it's kind of weird. I mean, looking back, is it didn't seem to, to – it's kind of one of those things where if you're in it, you don't realize you're in it until you look back at it and look at some of the science. But it really wasn't a, a discussion in the, my first four tours. Um, it wasn't until Oscar Austin that I took a look at it. Um, but uh, – and I can describe that if you want. But it was sort of a seat in your pants – let's try this without a lot of thought and it, it failed miserably. So, uh, um, you know, I think both the big learning thing here is to, to look at the science and listen to the folks who study this stuff. And, uh, and I think that's been the revolution in the Navy over the last, you know, 10 years. Yeah. Well, I heard you talking about, you know, coming to the point where you became more aware of this science, you know, what point in your career did you really understand that there was a, uh, you know, a potential for disaster if we didn't address sleep deprivation and shift work and, you know, uh, create the greatest environment for the men and women to thrive in. Right. Well, it was really in command of Oscar Austin when I saw this deployment looming and thought about how tired I had been. And I had read an article um, in uh, the Naval Institute Proceedings magazine where a ship had taken the crew and split them in half. They called it a blue and gold. And so each crew worked a 12-hour day and their counterpart worked the other 12, and then they literally had 12 hours off to sleep, work out, do paperwork and stuff like that. Um, but, uh, but the key was they slept at the same time and they worked at the same time. Um, and then whenever the ship pulled into port, they just flip-flopped. So I might be on from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. for a while. You would be on the other 12 hours, and then the next port visit we would, we would swap. So I read that, um, thought we would try it. Uh, nobody wanted to try it, but I kind of made them. And uh, so I made two ma two major mistakes. I, I made it a top-down, uh, sort of a militaristic, you know, do what I say because I'm the captain, um, and uh, which I have discovered never really works uh, in the long run. Um, and the other one was I didn't have any of the science behind it. I was just sort of, you know, sounded good. And, and uh, uh, so without a lot of planning, we tried it. And what happened was um, – Nobody really followed the rules like they would work on their off time. 
it would make their people work on their off time. And then when something broke, uh, nobody wanted to stop working on it and they wanted to get it fixed. And so a couple of my sailors I found were getting less sleep because they were working their off shift and coming back on shift. And so that automatically took them to 36 hours without sleep. So about a, about a month into deployment, we, uh, we just dumped that plan and went back to kind of the old way. So that was a colossal failure um, that I learned from. And then I got the chance to do it again about eight years later. And uh, this time I did, I think I felt like we did it the right way. So, so lead me through those next eight years. Like, you know, what were you exposed to as far as, you know, sleep medicine? Were you exposed to any disasters that, when you researched, realized the sleep deprivation was behind it? Uh, no, I mean, in, in uh, it's interesting. One of my uh, side duties towards well, that was later. So, I'm trying to think back. Um, not not necessarily. I mean, I did have a play. There was one case where uh, ashore, uh, when I was on, on the aircraft carrier up here in uh, Newport News, we were in shift work, kind of like I described. And one of the officers fell asleep on the way home after a mid-shift. And uh, I still remember I went to traffic court with him. And uh, the judge yelled at me as his supervisor for, you know, how can you allow this person to get in a car after you knew he was tired? You should have known. And that really kind of hit home with me that, uh, that, hey, I'm responsible for this, right? And so I started to do some research on my own. Um, and then when I uh, got to my next command, which was the USS San Jacinto, um, very much by happenstance, um, got connected with the folks that do this for a living in the Navy. And, uh, and that was the real uh, sort of life-changing experience that, that led, you know, down that road. And how did that connection happen? <laughs> so, uh, um, so the ship was doing a, what they call a family cruise, uh, here in, here in Norfolk, uh, you go up to Yorktown, Virginia is the, uh, uh, weapon station. It's about a day long transit, um, or a half day transit through the river there. Um, and they often take the families to go see what their, what their spouses do. And uh, on the way home. So we had gone up there to do some uh, weapons work, um, had loaded up about 150 uh, family members. We call them Tigers. They call it a Tiger Cruise to show them what the, what the Navy does. And uh, the plan was uh, bus them up in the morning. So get, they got on buses at like 430 in the morning, drive about two hours to Yorktown. Uh, we would fire up a barbecue grill, get underway, take a nice cruise down the river, out to the bay, shoot the guns, come back in, pull in around supper time. And they all go home. Um, that was the plan. Then, uh, as we got to get underway, one of the mooring lines got wrapped around one of the uh, propellers, um, which sort of put us out of commission against the pier. So now it's like 11 o'clock. Um, I have 150 hungry family members, and my supply officer comes in and says, I have bad news. And I said, What's the matter? He goes, Well, I broke out all this chicken to barbecue, but we can't light the grills because it's a weapon station. Um, so there's no food for these hungry family members. Um, so I got to put them, announced that we would have the buses come back up to Yorktown, drive them back home. So no boat trip, no food, and another two-hour ride, this time in traffic. Um, so I collapse in the wardroom, just soaked in sweat and just angry. And this woman walks up to me um, and says, how are you feeling, Captain? And I probably answered her in ways I shouldn't have. <laughs> like a sailor. <laughs> uh, like a sailor. And... Uh, and she goes, no, seriously. And she held out this little card with a stress continuum of green, yellow, orange, and red. And she says, where are you on this card? And I said, I'm about, I'm depressed, angry, and sad. 
it had little little words in there. And she goes, well, I can help you because uh, my name is Leanne Braddock and I run the Navy's operational stress program. And my son is on your ship. So that was the connection. One of my sailors' mother ran the Navy's program for operational stress. So um, through her, very quickly, I met uh, Dr. Anita Shattuck, who is uh, one of the Navy's leading experts on sleep research and science. And they were looking for a ship to experiment with this new watch bill that was based on science. Um, and so they forwarded me the brief and the, and the, and the, and the plan. Um, I signed up for it, and then we did a uh, uh, kind of a unique watch rotation for the entire deployment and, and you know, took notes and got feedback from the crew, and, uh, and that was sort of the start of things. All right, so what did that shift rotation look like? And then initially, was there any pushback from leadership and or the crew? Um, so the, the initial one we did was, uh, uh, it was kind of weird. It was three hours on three hours off three hours on. And then I want to say 15 hours off. I can't do math. I think that of 24. Um, and everybody hated it. Um, the three hours off, you just sort of piddled around and went back on, uh, no, you know, maybe work out, then you got to take a shower. And so, uh, very unpopular. And then, um, uh, one of the chiefs came up and said, uh, uh, chief petty officers in the Navy are sort of the senior enlisted. They're the more seasoned. Um, and so they pulled me aside and said, sir, this really sucks. You, we got to change this. Um, and so all we did was we shifted the three-hour periods to be uh, at the same time every day. So uh, if you and I were standing watch and there were two other people, I might have the, the 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. And then you would come on at 9 a.m. to noon. And then I would there would be two other people. I would come back on at 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. So um, sort of back to that model that we had before, but this time built around the watches, the three-hour watch. Um, so what immediately happened, like within days, is nobody was tired. Everybody was getting some sleep. Um, you know, three hours, it's like driving a car, right? I can get in the car and drive three hours. That's way different than driving five hours. Um, and it's certainly way different if I haven't slept before the five-hour trip. So um, within days, it was just like you flipped a switch and people were more alert. Um, the next thing we did was we got rid of kind of the daily routine that woke everybody up at the same time. Cause I had people that would stand watch every night from midnight to three. Well, you don't want them to have to get back up at 6am. So we shifted their work day to an offset and, uh, and their work day would be like, you know, noon to midnight, um, or maybe 3pm to 3am. And, uh, so so that was sort of the, you know, it truly was the most uh, revolutionary thing for such a simple decision, um, which was really none of my doing. I was just executing the plan that they gave us. But uh, it really sort of, for the most part, um, won over the crew. You know, like everything, if it's new, it automatically stinks for some people. And uh, so I had some folks who were very against it um, and even tried to undermine it. Um, but uh, uh, overall, it was very well received. Beautiful. Well, where did that lead you next? So, um, so that uh, led me uh, to to sort of publish with Dr. Shattuck a, uh, an article and some papers on it um, to build sort of uh, to to kind of give feedback for the Navy to uh, to work with it, and uh, and then to sort of just spread the word when I got to the next job, which was at the uh, at the staff where the ships all uh, work. Where the you know the ships all work for a, for an admiral there who runs all the uh, ships, right? So, at what point did you start kind of 
becoming more entrenched in the actual sleep medicine. So you know, the cognitive acuity, the long-term effects, the, those kind of elements outside of just observing whether the crew was seemingly more awake or not. Hey, that's a great question. Um, so it was sort of a revol- sort of an evolution. So the first part was a revolution. It was let's change this to get to be better at the daily day to day operations. Um, it wasn't until really Dr. Shattuck um, started to 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 share some of her research where she was looking more at the long term effects and the mid term effects. I think it was 2015, I got to participate in the RAND Corporation, did a great study on sleep in the military. And uh, and that was where I met some of the, you know, it was kind of funny. I, I used to joke when I went to that meeting, there was like 40 people there and they were all medical doctors or PhD researchers. And so uh, we went and introduced ourselves and I felt like I was the guy on Big Bang Theory um, that it has it only has a master's degree. Um because it was like, hi, I'm Dr. This, and I'm Dr. That, and I'm Dr. That. And it came my turn. It's like, I'm John. Um, and so, uh, uh, but they all had this incredible wealth of knowledge on what sleep deprivation does in the, in the short term, in the midterm, and the long term. And that's where I started to put two and two together that, hey, there's more to this than just, you know, operational necessity. Absolutely. And I can relate to that, too. I talk to a lot of chiefs, and I'm just firefighter gearing. <laughs> Um, right. <laughs> so, um, well, as as you started learning more, did you then re- retroactively look at some of the potential dangers, you know, for the lack of uh, cognitive acuity and then some of the long term dangers, especially in the more career, um, you know, naval personnel and, and seeing the effect of, of you know, longevity and maybe even the, not even reaching retirement? Um, you know, I can't really claim that level of, uh, uh, of, of research. I, I, I retired from the Navy, um, found that, you know, I have to think and also, um, you know, a lot of folks from the Navy retire or military retire and that's all you've done. Right. And so that's all, you know, that's all you're comfortable with. And so, uh, I ended up, uh, I should also mention, I retired the day of uh, government shutdown, sequestration, hiring freeze uh, in 2013. And so uh, I actually went off to a different direction, teaching, um, teaching shipboard maintenance. Um, that was sort of my day job. Um, but I was still interested and then and went back to school. And so at night I would go to class and that's where I got into the human systems and the human factors and sort of the long-term effects and looked at some of the research. Um, and then that led me to uh, to a research project that I was able to team up with Dr. Shattuck and her team at the postgraduate school. And uh, and that's kind of when I got into the research side. But that was sort of, a, a you know, almost a uh, an avocation in my free time. It wasn't really related to my job. Right. Now, what about um, uh, Rachel Markwald? Have you ever crossed paths with her? Because I, oh, yeah. I had her on the show as well. Oh, really? Oh, I didn't see that one. I'll have to go back and listen to that. She's awesome. Um, so the Navy has actually quite a cadre of sleep experts. Um, Dr. Kim Cully uh, for the submarine force, Dr. Shattuck, uh, and then Rachel is over at the lab down in Monterey, uh, in uh, San Diego. And, uh, and they're always collaborating. Um, you know, who knew there's an entire society, research society. Um, even now, I'm still being connected with people who are doing some really cool stuff. Uh, in that in that domain, but no, Rachel has been a great leader uh, of of a lot of really neat projects. Uh, a lot of the stuff in the COVID times now, right? Because COVID uh, 
uh, you know, sleep is also uh, a factor in your immune system as well. And so, uh, so no, that uh, has been some. We work with uh, Rachel quite a bit in our uh, in my current job. Beautiful. Well, I want to get into you know when you really really became involved in in the sleep research, sleep medicine side. But speaking of transitioning out, so you know you obviously were captain of of, of two ships and you rose all the way through the ranks. You spent a full thirty years. Um, you're in that tribe. You know you're with these men and women for all this this time. Um, some of the people that I've had on the show, you know, after leaving that tribe, they, it kind of jarred a little bit when they first transitioned out. What was your transition personally like? Um, you know, if I had a whiteboard, I would draw you sort of my stress graph, um, that, uh, you know, I went from a nuclear uh, job on a carrier in charge of the reactors called the reactor officer, um, to the command tour, uh, with the deployment, uh, to a staff job uh, that was very demanding and ended up as a, as a chief of staff where you had about 300 people and, you know, all the different phone calls and stuff. And so I, I was probably a seven, eight, nine on the stress scale of zero to 10, kind of in that yellow, in that yellow orange area um, as a way of life and, and sort of got used to it. So my retirement came up and uh, my wife and I went on a Caribbean cruise. Um, my stress level dropped to zero uh, pretty much for about two weeks. And then I got a civilian job, and uh, it was kind of funny. I showed up the first couple of days, and my boss, who was also uh, had been in the Navy, um, I'd check in with him in the morning, and he'd say, okay, thanks. And then I'd check out at night, and he'd say, okay, thanks. And after about two weeks, he said, hey, John, come here. Um, and I said, what's the matter? And he goes, nothing. And he goes, look, in the Navy, we kind of get up in the morning, we tell you what to do. And then before you go home at night, you tell your boss what you did. And the next day you come in, we tell you what to do. He's in the civilian world. It's kind of like this. I pay you to do stuff and I expect you to do it. Um, so you don't have to tell me you're doing it because I'll know. Um, and if you don't do it, I'll fire you. Um, and so you don't have to check in every morning and check out every afternoon because I just expect you to do what I pay you to do. And so that was a wake up call for me, no pun intended. Um, but it was also just a different level of stress. Um, and so uh, definitely better sleep, um, not having to get up and drive into the base at you know, 4.30 in the morning. Um, and some of the techniques I learned from Dr. Shattuck and her and, and Rachel helped out. Um, so that eased my transition. But I would say my stress graph kind of went down to about a three um, after I retired. Yeah, well, I heard you talking about, um, you know, towards the end, trying to um, educate people on the effects of sleep deprivation. And, you know, obviously it, it sadly took a tragedy before it really took hold. And the organizational stress is something that I saw before I retired. Now I'm, you know, I've still got this that I'm doing now. This is my, my profession now, but the, the weight off my shoulders of when you really boil it down, just removing all the red tape and actually be able to do what I've been trying to do the whole time was incredibly liberating. Was, did you find the same kind of thing yourself having, you know, trying to fight an uphill battle? And now once you were not, um, bound to that particular organization, having more freedom to really pursue and, and, and push the, the elements that you've been really trying to educate? Oh, absolutely. And, uh, and so, um, you know, really through a couple of venues, uh, Proceedings Magazine, Naval Institute, um, some of the Navy associations um, was able to sort of continue some of this work and, and through graduate school. Um, and then, uh, uh, you know, I, I kind of joke that it, it's kind of like, um, when you're on active duty and you probably felt this as a firefighter, 
um, it's like you're in an elevator, right? And you're looking at everybody else and the elevator is falling. And when you look at everybody else, it doesn't feel anything different because you're all falling. Um, and then you retire and you step out of the elevator and it's like, holy crap. Um, look how fast that thing's moving. Um, and, uh, and so that's what it was like for me is, you know, my wife said right away, she's like, it's nice to have my husband back. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And she said, oh, you were so stressed out. And I'm like, I wasn't stressed. And she's like, oh, you were stressed. And so, uh, so interestingly enough, um, I was out of the Navy totally for six years and now I'm kind of back in, uh, as a civil servant. And, uh, it definitely has been a change. You can feel the, uh, the sort of, uh, sense of urgency about, you know, getting ships out the door, getting the sailors, taking care of the sailors, the stress that they're under. And so that's been, uh, you know, I have to say that my, my stress meter has probably gone, uh, from a three back up to about a five. Um, just by being back in that environment, even though I'm not the one in uniform going on the ships and and and, and dealing with it all, but just the uh, the pace um, is just different. Right. Well, then walk me through that. And so, when when were you really at the helm? Again, no pun intended. <laughs> trying to to push change with the education of the acute and chronic effects of sleep deprivation and then you know lead me through some of the 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 very tragic incidents that happened that really helped push that over the hill as it were right um well just to be clear i was never really at the helm i was sort of uh i was in a leadership position but uh you know this wasn't the navy's focus back in 2012 13 um there was the Porter collision that happened that, that I investigated. There was one of the uh, uh, investigating officers. It happened at one o'clock in the morning. Um, and looking back, we really didn't focus on fatigue as a uh, as a factor. Um, it still wasn't, you know, oddly enough, culturally, it wasn't so much on the radar. Um, there were some uh, overtures towards the research. Um, but, you know, as with any big organization, it really, um, it's really people grew up one way and that's the way they kind of you know, uh, incorporate their, their, their training for the people coming behind them. And so there was still a culture of, Hey, I, I sucked it up, you know, you can too. And, uh, and there was some, some, some training, um, but it really wasn't the focus. The focus was material readiness and, and, and war fighting and things like that. And the connection, uh, still really wasn't there. It wasn't until the, uh, uh, the collisions in 2017, uh, when both the Navy report and now the National Transportation and Safety Board reports really focused in on uh, on sort of the combination of tasking, fatigue, work hours um, as uh, sort of the human factors, right, of stress, both acute and over time, cumulative. Um, and they kind of said we have to change this. And so uh, to the Navy's credit, um, the comprehensive review, it's called, um, really took a hard look at some of these cultural challenges and uh, and drove some pretty robust uh, policy changes in a very short time. Right. Well, expanding outside the Navy, correct me if I'm wrong, the Exxon, Exxon Valdez was um, a sleep deprivation, at least part of the uh, the element, and then also one of the nuclear incidents too. Is it Fukushima? Uh, yep. Um, you know, it really, when you look at it, um, uh, I think that the NTSB has fatigue. They have like a top 10 hit list and, and fatigue is always up near, near the top of it. So the Exxon Valdez, um, uh, the, you're right, the, uh, the reactor, um, 
you know, there's several incidents, whether it was that, maybe it was a combination of that plus either drugs or alcohol. Um, but, uh, but fatigue, if it's not a causal factor, it's very often uh, a contributing factor. And, you know, the other thing that, that came up uh, uh, when I was talking with Paul Kingsbury uh, with the Institute podcast is that in the very professions where you can't afford to be tired because you need to be at your best, um, those are the ones where you're the most tired. So doctors, firefighters, policemen, you know, the officer of the deck on a ship. Um, and so that was kind of the, the real sort of jarring thing for the Navy was that, hey, that has to be part of the culture. And uh, and so they pretty quickly adopted the circadian watch rotation that Dr. Shattuck's research had been supporting in Rachel. Um, and, uh, and that's now the case on, uh, on pretty much all Navy ships underway is uh, some version uh, certainly they have to be different depending on the ship's mission, but, but pretty much every ship in the Navy has some version of what they call a circadian watch rotation. Yeah. Well, and it's so pertinent to my profession and, you know, the associated professions. So when I think now with the knowledge that I have, I mean, I was exposed initially through um, Dr. Kurt Parsley, who's a Navy SEAL term physician, who basically tripped upon sleep deprivation and, and sleep medicine when he was looking at his seals and they were exhausted and their blood work was terrible and he finally found that they were all an ambient and they kind of put two and two together after a year and, and started exploring that area but I look at the the intersection wrecks you know these fire trucks these ambulances these police cars that, that kill civilians at an intersection I look at these you know firefighters that fall off a roof that, that get lost in a search you know these these medics that push the wrong drugs these police officers that shoot teenagers that were reaching for their driver's license and one discussion that's never brought up is sleep deprivation so again you've got men and women who absolutely you know their own lives the lives of their crew or you know fellow officers and the lives of the people we serve are absolutely in our hands and these are some of the you know the the most understaffed overworked professions and, and you know my thing is you know the army the navy the marines the seals the the air force Many of those, you know, military organizations are starting to understand that now. And like you said, you've got the Rachels, you've got the Alec, um, uh, uh, Alison Brager, excuse me, the Alison Bragers, you know, all these, these experts in each of these different branches, Janelle McCauley. And yet in the fire service and, and probably law enforcement too, we're still ignoring. And I get asked, Oh, we need research. I'm like, well, you've got them in all these other fields. Do you don't have to have it in your specific, you know, profession? This carries over. So I couldn't agree with you more. When lives are at stake, and and the perfect example is right now, we have the most vulnerable population are the ones that everyone's leaning on: the the doctors, the nurses, the the, the police officers, the medics, the firefighters. Those are the most sleep-deprived, immunocompromised professions that we have, and they're the ones that everyone's asking to protect them. No, absolutely. And, and, you know, it's funny you mentioned the research piece because that was sort of some of the pushback uh, when, uh, you know, even after I retired and was kind of trying to sort of gently push, um, uh, I often heard, well, you know, we need more research. And uh, um, it's, it's, it's definitely uh, frustrating to, to have to sort of reinvent the same thing and, and people – uh, you just can't make the connection that there's such a such a uh, a parallel universe there, whether you're a, a Navy firefighter or a civilian firefighter. And the same, you know, that's what kind of one of the, the, the things I tell people is, you know, your, your body doesn't care what's on your shoulders or, you know, on your collar devices. Uh, sleep is sleep, and you can't change the way your body reacts to sleep. 
Um, there's also kind of a false narrative that you can train your way out of it, right? If I just stay, if I just train myself to stay awake longer, then I'll be able to stay awake longer. Um, you know, if, if you train yourself like that and then I don't, and then we both stay awake for the same time and take the same test, we're going to score the same, uh, because your body just doesn't react that way. Um, so, uh, so no, I think it's, uh, um, you know, I don't know, maybe there's a way to sort of share some of that. I know Dr. Shattuck and the Navy teams have done some research. I know they've worked with NASA. They've worked with, uh, uh, you know, uh, guards. Uh, they did something in, in, uh, in the White House, I think. So there have been some excursions outside, but, uh, but it's pretty basic science, right? And so, uh, you know, that might be something, you know, maybe you're in a position to uh, you know, pull in, there's some, there's some, there's a sleep research society. Um, there's some foundations that are pretty heavy in the research side that could probably pull something together to make a compelling case. I think the case you have to make is this is not about coddling people. This is not about being nice to people, um, or, or some, some, uh, implication that they're not tough. This is about operational safety. It's about performance. Um, and then, as I mentioned, uh, you know, if you're in a leadership position, at some point you bear some responsibility, you know, you look back at the mining profession and, and all the risk that miners took for decades with no accountability for the, for the people that own the mines. Um, and so, uh, by the same token, you know, where's the, and I think that might be, and maybe you know better than I do, you know, one good thing about the Navy is there's like one guy or gal who's in charge. And so if you can get to them, then you can change the whole organization. I don't think, you know, the police or the firefighting world is that way. You almost have to do it one county, one city, one state at a time. And uh, and so it's tough to get a consistent policy, I guess. I don't know. You, you, maybe you can clear me up on that. No, you're absolutely right. And that's the problem. So I think we talked last time before we, you know, before we sat down tonight. Um, and I was illustrating that we have... Um, departments in the northeast and some very very few dotted around the rest of the states that work a 2472 um and for people listening to me they're going to be rolling their eyes going okay here we, james is talking about this again <laughs> i'm going to flog this yeah. dead horse till we change it um but you know i think that's a great industry standard so you do a full 24 which you know we we call 2448 which is most of the the workforce one on two off Okay, which actually is complete rubbish because a 24 hour shift is not one, you know, one day's work. It's three days work crammed together. Um, right. So a 2472 ultimately allows these men and women two days off to recover before you do another full 24 hours. And most departments out there, if they're suburban or urban, are going to be running pretty much all through the night. So that's 24 hours without sleep. In the fire service specifically, I think 24 hours is a good time because we do a have access to, you know, lazy boys or beds. So we are able to, to nap. But also by the time we do all the checkouts, all the training, all the things that we have to do as jack of all trades, masters of none. Um, I don't think we'd better get that done effectively in an eight or 12 hour shift. So, but the, the, the 2448 creates a 56 hour work week. So just like we were saying before, the person, you know, in, in the bank, the bank teller is working a 40-hour week. The person's going to work on your child at three in the morning in a pediatric, you know, cardiac arrest is working 56 hours a week. It's, it's just insanity. So we have departments that are working the, the, the work week that I think we should be. It's just trying to educate the rest 
in A, the risks and B, even the actual, you know, financial savings. Like the more you work these people, it is costing your department down the road in, in all the health, uh, the, the breakdown in that person's health. I'm, I'm struggling for the right word, but also, you know, the mistakes, the more cognitive mistakes we make, the more chances there are for lawsuits and all the uh, associated costs too. No, absolutely. And so, you know, there's a place where, you know, like I mentioned with my um, uh, two ships is uh, the difference was science. So Dr. Shattuck and her team and Rachel, they can take any schedule. They can plug it into what's called a uh, fatigue. I want to say, uh, oh, gosh, I should fast. Um, uh, I should know. Uh, basically, it's a, it's a scheduling tool where you can plug in and it'll sort of correlate your expected performance with a lot of test data from people that have at different levels of fatigue. And so you can predict your, what they call your effectiveness and they sort of correlate it with your blood alcohol. And so you can, you can just graph it out where there's kind of a dip after you stay up for 24, 36 hours. And somewhere at the 36 hour point, I believe is where you get close to the 0.08. You know, if, if you stayed up for 36 hours and I drank a six pack of beer and we took the same motor skills test and the same cognitive test. We score about the same. Uh, different reasons from a scientific standpoint, but the results are, are pretty equivalent. So, um, you know, they're, believe it or not, they're almost as certainly an ideal uh, solution, right? Um, that, that no matter what you are doing, uh, one shift is going to be a little bit better. Have, again, you have to balance, like you said, the, the training, the drills, the, uh, the maintenance and stuff like that. Um, but, uh, you know, it's the kind of thing where if you got the right people in the room for, with the right, uh, background, you could probably come up with sort of an optimal schedule for firefighters, if you will. Um, so that, that, that's a doable thing. And then the question is, how do you sell it? Right. But you have to sell it, like you said, both from the personal standpoint, but if it's, if it's going to save them money, now they're interested, right. Um, or if it's going to save accidents, maybe that's maybe that's a motivator. So that's the other key is, uh, as you know, um, from, from your past and obviously from doing these podcasts, um, there's sort of the what's in it for me factor, right? Um, like I, I, I've seen so many senior uh, naval officers look at the circadian watch thing and kind of say, well, you know, I'm pretty smart. I didn't think of it. So eh, there can't be much there. Um well, it's because you haven't studied it and you haven't thought about it. And usually after about an hour with Dr. Shattuck, you watch the light bulb come on. They're like, oh, no, I didn't know. That. I didn't think about that. And so it is sort of uh, um, it's amazing what you learn when you realize that you don't really know what you're talking about. Uh, and you're talking to someone who does. Um, and uh, so maybe there's a way, you know, to collaborate there and, and see what the best. Uh, I know one of my friends did a schedule that was, uh, I think there were four shifts, and they did 12 on, 12 off for four days, which is 48 hours, and then they had four days off. And then they came back and did the opposite. So, you know, noon to midnight, and then four days off, and then midnight to noon. I think there there was uh, like a a hospital shift, Um, which seemed to work pretty well, I think, because like you said, 12 hours is a lot different than 24 as far as your wakefulness. Um, now, in the Navy, we haven't done that, usually because everybody's afraid that everybody, if, they have, if you give the sailors four days off, they'll get in trouble, right? Um, so there's always sort of this, this sort of wild card factor. Um, and, you know, on the shipboard watches, uh, there's challenges with a short three-hour watch if you have to do training and drills on watch, right? So 
there's always other factors that might drive you to a different solution. Uh, but at the end of the day, if you're working more than about a 12-hour day, there's lots of science that says that you are you, you very quickly fall off the cliff as far as effectiveness. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, like I said, I think for the for the law enforcement, I want to explain. Uh, excuse me, explore the circadian shifts in a moment. But um, yeah, that that's a different animal. You know, dispatch is a different animal. Corrections. I think for the fire service, because we live literally in a house, we're able to to make those twenty four work. But again, it's reducing that work week. It's giving them that extra day to recover so they can get as close to reset as possible. But one thing I want to do, just just without loading the question. Through what you've learned, through your your perspective, you know, what are some of the acute dangers of sleep deprivation, the kind of moderate and then the chronic elements that you've seen and you've learned? No, thanks. Um, uh, so we kind of talked a little bit about, but but just to be specific, um, you know, the science will tell you that if you stay awake for too long, uh, which is somewhere in the 18 hour range is kind of where, you know, you're normal, you're normally up for 12 ish. Uh, or a little more. Uh, once you pass about 18, start to get to 24, um, your mind just starts to uh, to sort of lose the edge, and you um, you start to make bad decisions. If you get a little further down the line, um, you know your body, your mind is going to kind of go to sleep. They call them micro naps or micro sleeps, where literally you kind of just have these these brief pauses. It may be a couple of seconds, but if that couple of seconds is you know barreling down the highway at, at, at 70 miles an hour. Um, or, uh, you know, you're in a burning building or, or you're, you're responding to, a, a, you know, to gunfire, if that timing is such that you're in that zone, you can't stop your body from shutting down. And so, um, you know, it's just uh, uh, it really impacts your, your performance right now today. If you do that for months at a time and kind of the schedule you're talking about, um, you never really build up, you never really pay off that sleep debt um, and, and again, I'm really kind of quoting kind of Dr. Shaddix and, and Rachel Markwald's research, but, uh, what they'll tell you is things like, uh, you know, if you're sitting through training, your cognitive skills are deteriorated. So you're not gaining the knowledge that you could, you're not focused. Um, your, your attention to detail, if you're doing a pre-flight checklist, if you're inspecting the truck, uh, you're going to miss stuff. And so, you just become overall less effective. So that could be a sailor on a six-month deployment, uh, standing a non-circadian watch. It could be a firefighter, uh, you know, standing that 24 and 72 routine. Uh, a doctor, you know, um, I think we discussed before the podcast, uh, one of my friends in medical school and, and you know, the what do you call them, the, uh, the residents, right? There were four of them. Um, so they were working a sort of 12-hour, 12, uh, 12 on, 48 off. Um, but then one of them quit. So now it's three people. And then the third guy was going to quit. And there was such pressure to stay because if he quit, the other two went to basically what we call a port and starboard, sort of a blue gold. And they're all 12 on 12 off or something like that. And they would have died. Uh, they would have just worn themselves out. So, um, now it definitely over the long term can really start to impact just your ability to learn, your ability to focus, uh, mental health. Uh, there's a great uh, some great studies on the correlation between uh, sleep deprivation and stress, between sleep deprivation and suicide. Um, I know you've talked with uh, Robert Sweetman, um, you know, former SEAL, um, and, and you're right. The SEALs have figured this out, right? Their body is the weapon, so they have to keep it sharp. So they're more likely to. Um, you know, if they're not working out, they're probably sleeping. 
you know, um, because they know they have to be up to go fight the war at night. Um, and so, uh, so that's where I think, uh, you know, in the long term, you start to look at sleep deprivation, stress, uh, suicidal behavior, destructive behavior. Um, it's all kind of tied together. Um, and then you look at the long, long term, uh, you know, sleep apnea for the for folks in the military um, is pretty common. Um, it's actually uh, when you do your disability checkup, uh, it automatically puts you at 50 percent disability. Um, and uh, so a lot of folks uh, go through that, get the CPAP machine. Um, but there's science that shows that, you know, uh, you're more prone to disease, uh, things like diabetes, um, being overweight, uh, blood pressure issues. And even I think there was one study where they had a higher incidence of cancer um, for shift workers. So definitely some detrimental effects. But, you know, again, it's, it's tough to capture that. Um, and uh, in the military, I'm sure you're the same way. Uh, you know, you'd like to think your boss is concerned about what's going to happen to you 20 years from now, but they're really not. Right. They're, they're, they're worried about getting the job done today. Um, and sometimes at the sacrifice of, of what happens in the long run. Yeah. Well, thank you for that, because you've nailed you know several elements that I have brought up before. It's definitely not new. And obviously with Robert, and I want to thank him again for uh, connecting us. But we talked about this as well. But I get all these people from the sleep world. And it's something that I, again, was only exposed to about six years ago myself. So it's not I'm not banging the door screaming, you know, like, why don't you understand? I'm I'm understanding that we didn't we weren't taught this we weren't aware of this as a culture and certainly as a profession but the diseases that you just mentioned are the things that are killing my brothers and sisters in in my profession so it's not just one thing it used to you know with the cancer thing there's there's a myopic focus on oh it's the it's the carcinogens in the smoke that's what's killing us let's wash our gear is that a factor absolutely it's a factor and you should wash your gear and you should shower and you should wipe your skin down after a fire but I, my last apartment hardly saw any fire and we lost person after person after person to cancer. And then with the mental health side, we have a suicide, you know, a pandemic, you know, in the first responder profession, in the military. And again, this is, this is one of the things. And the SEALs are a perfect example. They lose people all the time and it's horrendous. And that's the thing that's not talked about. It's not just the things that we see. It's not just the things that we did. It's the sleep deprivation element. If you're not able to, to rest and recover injury is a foregone conclusion so until we address the sleep all the other things that we're talking about honestly are, you know in my opinion at least are secondary to this fundamental you know part of the human experience which is when the sun goes down the the organism that is the human naturally sleeps until the sun rises again and as soon as we work against that with shifts with artificial light we are pushing ourselves further and further towards disease now absolutely and you know you know two points that you made there um you talked about about the uh you know suicide and, and you know the other piece that we're finding so now in my new job uh it's called a human factors engineering psychologist, even though I'm not really a psychologist. Um, but the, the, the specialty is human factors. You know, mental health becomes kind of a discussion item because um, back to that doctor, if you lose someone, then somebody else has to pick up that work and there's no person to replace them. Uh, aside from the fact that you care about the individual, but as an organization, you can't afford that either. And so, uh, you know, the caregivers 
Uh, we see this on our ships, the chaplain, the, the, uh, uh, the corpsman, um, the counselors. Um, they're the ones that bring it upon themselves um, and take that home with them. You know, one of my friends, good friends, is a therapist who retired because he said, I was just seeing too many patients with uh, some level of you know, PTSD, destructive behavior, um, and uh, I just felt overwhelmed and I couldn't help them. And I was taking it home and it became too much. And I said, I just can't, you know, uh, I can't do this anymore. So uh, we see some of that. I could certainly see the self, you know, the the first responder, um, you know, you see some terrible things and then, you know, go home, take a shower and come right back to work. And it's like, well, how's this affecting me? Right. Um, And so I think that is sort of where we're starting to learn a little more, but it's all connected, like you said. Um, And, uh, and no, I think really uh, you're absolutely right that uh, that if you start to get the sleep right, a lot of the other stuff kind of takes care of itself. Absolutely. Well, you wrote a great paper um, paralleling, excuse me, paralleling um, sleep deprivation with black lung. So I'd love to hear you expand on that. No, oh, okay. Well, uh, yeah, that was interesting. Um, I had written the paper, um, and. I forget. I can't even remember now. I think I was Googling, uh, trying to figure out a title. And, you know, if one thing I've learned from writing for the magazines is uh, if they don't have catchy titles, they don't sell magazines. Right. Um, and uh, so uh, but when you look at the black lung, like I mentioned before, with the miners, um, here's a work related scenario that's, that's causing people to die after they leave. Um and uh, in this case, which I think is a little bit different, so it's a bit maybe a bit of an unfair comparison. You know, in the, in the black lung world, there was active resistance, both political and economical, to shut down any discussion about a connection between um, something that just makes so much common sense. You know, you're down there bleed, breathing this dust um, and then dying of a lung disease. I mean, it ain't rocket science that they're connected, but uh, there was such a public affairs like smoking, there was such a public affairs flavor to the to the efforts to suppress it. The Navy, it was more, you know, hey, that's not our focus, right? Like our focus is it's a tough job, we got to do it. Um, and the fact that some simple changes would have made a huge difference um, uh, was kind of lost. And so that was sort of the comparison. Um, certainly got some attention, uh, and uh, and and, but I think you know it was. I was trying to make a point, and, and I think you know it did tend to resonate, especially with the junior folks um, who were out there standing those watches and doing those shifts. Um, but also with some of the older generation, it was like, hey, maybe that's why I can't sleep now. Dr. Shattuck will tell you about this thing called circadian scarring, where um, just like if you cut yourself, you know, years later it's healed, but there's still something there. Um, if you go years with a broken circadian rhythm. Um, you never recover. It's kind of like, you know, sort of, uh, you know, why am I waking up at 5 a.m. the last three days because of daylight savings time, right? Um, your body takes a long time to kind of shift that. I think they tell you when you fly, it's like one day for one hour of a time zone change. So it's not something the body just quickly recovers from. And then over time, it literally leaves lifelong uh, scars. No, absolutely. And it's interesting because you, you mentioned smoking. So obviously we've got... I, I just had an epiphany actually with smoking recently. So we now in 2020, one of the most beautiful things about the US is you 
really don't smell cigarette smoke very much anymore. Obviously, if you're a smoker, that's, <laughs> that's different, but you know, in, in the, the, the general areas, um, but the reason why it kind of struck me is I was actually at Universal Studios where I work as a stuntman on the side wearing the, the mask that I was issued by Universal. So a purpose built, you know, proper mask with a little, you know, metal nose piece and everything that's, that's as good as any regular mask would be. Not, not a medical grade by any means, but, um, and they have these little pockets where you can still smoke in the park, but they're kind of tucked away. And I was able to smell the ambient smoke from, I mean, 50 meters away. It was crazy. <laughs> so it was kind of like a, you know, a pretty good example of how those masks really aren't as effective as people are being led to believe. Because if I can, you know, inhale smoke particles from 50 meters away, uh, I'm pretty sure yeah. I can inhale and exhale virus particles too. Um, but that aside, you know, it's, it's, we saw how the cigarette industry Opposed, they 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 publish false you know literature that it wasn't harmful. You know, doctors believe that it was you know healthy to smoke way back in the the forties and fifties. Um, and so you would think that human beings would never be so you know uh, I don't know if corrupts the right word, but it would be so inhumane as to keep trying to push something they knew their products were killing. But that has happened, and I think there's an element of that, like you mentioned, with some of the mining companies trying to push against the the research of black lung. And even with this, like what I'm seeing now with the administrations in, in these counties and cities is it's the short sightedness that, oh, it's going to cost more money if we, if we, for example, staff these departments where these men and women can have more time off in between. The, the sad thing is that the, the human element should be enough to, for them to say, okay, now that we know about sleep and everything, you know, we have been overworking you guys. We're going to staff up. We're going to make sure you're taken care of. Sadly, that doesn't seem to be the case in a lot of places. So the next thing is, you know, like you said, the, the, the fiscal side. But even then, there's a short sightedness where what I have seen, you know, in, in where I've worked, and I'm not saying this is everywhere, there seems to be this, I want to look good this budget year. I want to cut the budget. I want to get my Christmas bonus. I want to look like a rock star. And then I want to promote up instead of I'm going to take it on the chin, but I'm going to invest in this department. So 10 years from now, they're going to save hand over fist too, because they're going to have a healthier department that aren't going to be dropping dead at the end of their career. Right. Um, no, I mean, I think in some ways that's the nature of the business, you know, on the outside world, the, the, that currency is, is money. Um, in the Navy, it's kind of readiness, right? Um, and so everything else is sacrificed on that altar. And so uh, um, the fact that you're sort of mortgaging your future for it, uh, both literally and figuratively, but again, back to that sense of responsibility to the people that work for you um, and your coworkers, um, it's easy to kind of lose sight of that because you're going to be gone, they're going to be gone. It's not staring you in the face 10 years from now. Um, it's somebody else's problem. So uh, I don't know how you change that mentality. Um, and uh, But I do think there's certainly uh, opportunity. Uh, we just continue to learn more and more about it. Um, but, but even now, I've kind of been challenged. So, you know, why study this? Because we've already studied it. Okay, what are we doing about it? You know, um, and, uh, and so, uh, you know, certainly there, there's, there's some science that could help out um, so maybe that's something, you know, beyond the podcast that we could talk about is how could we uh, collaborate a little bit? Uh, because I'm sure that some of the lessons that we would learn from your world would apply back to ours, you know. Um, 
there's sort of this notion that being in the military is so different that you just can't transfer stuff back and forth and, and totally not true, you know, having having stepped on both sides of the fence now. Yeah, absolutely. I had, it's funny, I had a conversation with a good friend of mine who's a firefighter and a very well-respected human performance coach too, and he works with special operations, including SEALs. And uh, he was told the same thing, like by firefighters, like, well, we're not the military. And I told him, I'm like, well, ask them back, ask them this question. The name of profession that is closest to us. You can't. I mean, the, the military is as close to the first responder profession as you can get. So I disagree 100%. They are very much like that. We even call ourselves paramilitary. So are we, are we the military? No, but are there a huge amount of commonalities? Absolutely. Right. But it is funny, you know, when I retired, one of the jobs I interviewed for was with a, 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 one of these resort companies that manages properties, right? And it was sort of the engineering. Um, and so your job was literally to make sure that the hotels and the properties had electricity, power, that the restaurant was up and running, inspections, sanitation, all this kind of stuff, right? Um, and uh, I went to the interview, and it was like I was speaking a foreign language. The The, the people are like, well... So your military experience has nothing to do with what, what you would be doing here. And I'm like, well, you know, everything I did on the ship was exactly what you just described, right? There were 600 people with rooms that had to be air conditioned and had to have running water. There was sanitation. There was a propulsion plant. There was electric electric plant. Um, like it's literally the same. And they're looking at me like, nah. Um, and so, you know, no no callback interview. But uh, <laughs> it's uh, – um, you know, one of my friends got out of the Navy and, and went to a cat food factory um, that was running at like 40 percent productivity. And uh, he reached back to the Navy and got some of our plan maintenance cards and, and, and procedures to, to just sort of, you know, do routine maintenance on the equipment. And within six months, he had them up to 80 percent um, just by applying some of the basic practices he learned in the military that were not being done. You know, they would fix it when it broke. Um and shut the whole assembly line down rather than shut the line down for an hour a night to keep it running. And so, uh, you know, which is kind of the analogy to the sleep thing is that you can stay up for 48 hours, uh, but you're going to crash. Um, and so if you let yourself sleep, you know, even our instruction says, Hey, seven hours a night, but also five hours a night and a two hour nap, um, sort of end up in the same place. So there's different ways to get to the same answer. Absolutely. And then that's a very valid point with the, the cat food factory. I love that. That's why I love talking to people like you. You know, if we just stay in our little echo chamber in our profession, you know, we're going to do the same things we've always done. But when you start looking outside, so, you know, I'm sure the, the people that, that own that factory never thought about reaching out to the U.S. Navy for the solution to their productivity. And that's how I see this. The more fields that we reach out to, the more humble we are in our own profession, the more we realize that, yes, there are, there are different professions that have answers to our solutions. There are different countries that have solutions to our country's problems, you know, but it takes humility to do that. Absolutely. Um, no, you know, back, you know, let's go back to your world, right? I mean, if, if uh, one of the things that we discovered with our uh, the Air Force's drone pilots was they were working, you know, long shifts and then having to drive home. So they actually built a sleep room on the base um, and they required them when they got off of their work shift before they went home, they had to take a nap. They had to go in here. It was it was soundproof. It was lightproof. They had to sleep for a certain amount of time. 
then they could get in their car and drive home. So back to the fire station, um, I'm guessing that your sleep occurs on a couch or a chair in a lighted room with people playing, you know, Nintendo on the TV or maintaining the truck. You know, what if you had a, a dedicated and not just a closet, but a room with comfortable sleeping and admit that you're going to sleep as part of your workday um, so that when my house burns down, you'll be ready to go, you know? No, absolutely. And it's something that I've, I've you know, talked about a bit in the dorms. Like there are ways of just waking up. So, you know, you have a station that has, a, say, three vehicles in, you know, a truck, an engine and a chief, for example. Um, you know, there, there, I've worked in many stations where the entire station is woken up every time one of those crews has a call. So they're woken up over and over and over again. There'll be, you know, alert systems that illuminate the whole dorm. The lights all come on. There's, there's rooms. You know, there's, uh, sirens going off versus, like you said, there are systems where you can, basically wake up just those two people ideally they have their own rooms if they don't you can still get it where it's local to right next to that bed you know they have chiefs that monitor the radio um of all the calls that are basically staying up all night i mean it's it's insanity you're not that important get over yourself if you're needed they will tone you out but go to sleep right right no that's exactly uh i mean one of the things that we've started to look at now is uh you know most ships the sailors ball birth together by division, uh, you know, by their work uh, specialty. But what if they birth together by their watch team so that they all woke up at the same time and went to bed at the same time? How much better would they sleep, you know? So um, sometimes something that is just, it's, it seems so simple, but culturally, um, and of course we haven't talked about it, but there's the stigma of just sleeping um, during the normal workday, um, which is, uh, you know, I used to laugh at my last job. They had a great gym right on our floor um, with all the workout gear. It was never used. Um, had they put in some cots to take a nap during the day, I bet it would have filled up, you know, if that was culturally acceptable. Um, so, uh, no, I think the, the culture is a big piece of it, too, is is what's your focus? Is your focus sort of the, the, the old way of just the way I grew up? Or is it, hey, I have a job to do. And everything I do should be focused on that moment when I have to be at my best. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, that's the thing that we've seen in the fire service too. There are, there are departments that will ban naps from, you know, let's say eight till eight. Um, I've even heard of the, the UK fire service. I believe it was, if I'm not mistaken, even took the beds away. So, that, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, there's so much ignorance in in some of these stations where again it's just a pure lack of education and i think they're falling on you know we're paying you you got to be productive we have a lot of what we call busy work in the fire service but like you were pointing out there's a complete detachment from the fact that if we're rested we are going to perform as close to optimally as possible the more you create busy work the more you stop people from resting the less they're actually going to perform when there is a cardiac arrest, an extrication, a house fire, a rope rescue, when we're truly needed. To, and, you know, seconds really do count by that point. No, absolutely. No, that, that's true. It's a mindset. It's a culture. Um, and, and it can be done. I mean, I've watched it. I've watched the Navy turn uh, quite, you know, considerably. Um, but it almost takes a generation, too. I mean, I've also, one of the things that's happened in the last 10 years is a lot of the older folks who kind of grew up that way have retired and they're out of the pipeline and they're not married to that old thing. And so now 
there's a generation of officers who's only known the circadian watch bill. And they're like, why the heck would we ever do five, you know, this five on, ten off, we call it five and dimes. That's stupid, you know, um, because that's all they've known. Kind of like your smoking thing. If you grow up in a place where nobody smokes, uh, you know, you're, you look at somebody who smokes and it's just like, ah, um, but uh, but it's, it's all about what they were immersed in as they as they sort of came up through the ranks. Absolutely. Well, I want to transition to one more area and then go to some closing questions so I can let you go. But you touched at the very beginning of the interview about being in the, you know, the nuclear engineering world and then anticipating using that when you retired to continue your career. But that technology, you know, not being um, favored in, you know, the, the current time. So, you know, what's, what are the pros and cons of nuclear power and what are some of the hopefully more progressive, um, energy sources that we are leaning into in 2020? Oh gosh. Um, probably a little bit out of my overall expertise, but, uh, (laughs) it's, it's You're far more well-educated than I am. So (laughs) Yeah. yeah, I'm just older. Um, you know, I think what really made the Navy effective and what makes the Navy effective in the nuclear power world, because, you know, you don't realize it, but there's nuclear reactors, you know, there's dozens of them right here in Hampton Roads and in San Diego. Um, um, and there's two things that make them safe and effective. One is a consistent, repetitive design. So instead of having 18 different companies building all kind of crazy, uh, you know, designs, um, nuclear, uh, those naval reactors is the group that runs it. Uh, one of the most senior officers in the Navy with incredible scrutiny and version control, procedures, supply chains, um, all focused around safety. Um, not to mention probably the best training program on earth. Um, and so uh, if you had that in the civilian world where I could work at a reactor in Savannah and then transfer to a reactor in California, and it would be the same. It would be the same training and the same materials and the same type of plant. Um, I think you could, you know, you could have that trust. Um, you know, the nation has to trust the operators that they're not going to have a meltdown and contaminate my environment. And so that's why Navy nuclear power has been so successful because they really focus on that. It's expensive. Um, but, uh, you know, like I said, readiness is the, is the day. And, and so, uh, you know, a nuclear ship only refuels every 13 or 15 years. Um, so, uh, you know, the solar energy, uh, wind energy, you know, you see the windmills going up off the coast of Virginia. Um, I think it's, it's only a matter of time. And, and a lot of times, you know, it's, it's necessity is the mother of invention. So when we do run out of the natural resources, we'll, we'll shift to that. Um, but I think there's a lot of science that says, hey, you can actually, you know, save money by putting up these green greener uh, and, and, and somebody has to build them. Somebody has to install them. Um, so, uh, um, you know, of all days to be talking about this, it's, uh, it's interesting to see, uh, you know, a lot of my neighbors are looking at solar energy for the roof to kind of divorce themselves from the grid um, and having to pay that. So definitely there's opportunities there. But I think, you know, some Three Mile Island was a factor, um, but I don't think the civilian world ever got to the level of rigor and, and standardization that the Navy has held to. Beautiful. So, so basically, if if they had the same um, strict parameters to work under, you think that nuclear could still be safe? 
I think so. I mean, there's other countries that have kind of followed that model. Um, but, uh, um, but again, you know, there's still the risk of a, you know, um, it's, it's the likelihood versus the severity, right? Uh, when you look at risk management and, you know, most of a good chunk of the world has decided that the, uh, even the lowest likelihood, uh, is never going to get to zero and it outweighs the, the severity of an accident would outweigh that, I guess. Yeah. Um, now, just just as a complete random tangent, um, one thing I've commented on a couple of times was when this pandemic first hit, you saw this beautiful pushback from Mother Nature. You know, we were all off the roads. You know, there was, there was a lot less fossil fuel being used. And I'm not talking about global warming. I'm just talking about visible changes, whether it was air quality, whether it was water quality. Um, you know, did that, how, how was that through your lens? You know, having, having this background alternative power, did that give you any, um, I don't know, like insight into the potential of some of this clean energy that you've been working with most of your career? Uh, you know, I, I'd like to say I'm that insightful, but, uh, to be honest, um, uh, you know, my focus during this uh, COVID was uh, our own health, um, learning to telework, right? Um, which was, uh, which definitely, you know, I certainly noticed the savings in gas for not commuting and things like that. But uh, um, no, I think, you know, it'd be interesting. There's been a lot of articles about, hey, you know, at some point the COVID will, will become less, um, but will we go all the way back to the way we were? And, uh, you know, maybe not. So maybe that maybe there could be some goodness come out of it, um, but uh, you know on the Navy side there's been a lot of changes to schedules, a lot of changes to the work routines to accommodate, um, you know social distancing and things like that, and so you know we're learning, um, and uh, you know we, we just had some ships come back that have been underway for 200 plus days without a port visit. You know that's a long time to be among you know 300 of your best friends with nobody else. And uh, so we're still learning some lessons, I think, that were sort of secondary effects from the COVID. All right. Well, seeing as we've been talking about sleep so much, what about what is your philosophy on um, the importance of sleep in fostering resilience against something like a virus that we've seen in the last few months? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Dr. Shattuck has a really eye-opening graph that shows sort of your immune system at different levels of sleep deprivation. And I want to say, you know, the difference between like eight hours of sleep a night and six or five or six hours a night is literally like 50% uh, less immunity when you're in that condition. So, uh, you know, kind of back to the front first responders, the firefighters, the doctors, you know, here's the folks who really need that immunity. Um, by the nature of their business, they're sacrificing the most important thing that would protect them uh, after the, after that mask. Um, so absolutely. You know, there's a, there's a very, very strong, uh, scientific uh, research to show the connection between uh, fatigue and immunity in your immune system. Yeah, and I couldn't agree more. All right, well then, shifting to some closing questions. The first one I love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or something completely different. I tend to grab biographies. I don't know why, but I'm always fascinated by what made one person, you know, uh, do something different than other people. And so, uh, um, 
you know, so I think that's sort of the genre, more so than one particular book. If you look at my bookshelf, there's, there's, you know, everybody from uh, uh, Grant to Socrates to Bill Clinton to Ronald Reagan, um, some generals, some philosophers. And so I'm always fascinated by, you know, what made that person, what motivated them, what made them do something better than everybody else. You know, Michelangelo, um, uh, gosh, what's the book? Uh, we did a trip around Italy one time trying to find all of his uh, uh, works where that are hidden around Italy. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that would be, I would, I would say, more a genre than, than a particular book. Brilliant. All right. Well, then what about uh, a movie and or documentary? Oh, gosh. Boy, you're, you have this fault. <laughs> I'm actually you know, like, like sophisticated or something. Um, you know, <laughs> the movie that plays on almost a relatively endless loop at our house is Moonstruck. Um, I don't know if you ever, have you ever seen that one? Um, I don't know if I've seen it, but I know it's Cher movie, isn't it? It's Cher, well, it's a Cher movie and it's a Nicolas Cage movie. Um, and uh, there's just some, uh, every little nuance in that movie is just hilarious. So that one's one we watch all the time. That's That's one of our favorites. Um, that and anything with Cary Grant in it pretty much, uh, is a given. Is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Um, yeah, there's probably three people that I would, uh, uh, could, would come to mind. You already had Rachel, uh, Dr. Shattuck, um, that I mentioned, uh, she's at the Navy postgraduate school in Monterey. She does a lot of these types of things. Um, and then, uh, uh, my old captain Kirk Lippold, um, does a lot of public speaking and he was there for the coal bombing, um, has, uh, has done a lot of sort of national security type talks, but his real strength in my mind, um, you know, it was funny, uh, when I was his XO, um, he was the hard driving, uh, hard, you know, very precise, uh, sort of militaristic leader. I'm sort of over on the more, you know, sort of touchy feely side. Um, and he would be driving the crew really hard. Right. Um, and, uh, and I would come up and say, sir, you know, we got to think about their quality of life. Right. Um, and he would say, XO quality of life means coming home alive from the, you know, the deployment, the war. Um, and, uh, and so that really, that really struck me, um, that, uh, you know, I had a sailor tell me after the uh, event, you know, kind of back to our original discussion, um, crossing the Atlantic to go on that deployment. Uh, I had left the ship, um, but the captain was doing drills, these these long damage control fire drills, like every night, um, and just driving people crazy. And the sailor said, you know, I, uh, I, I hated it, and I was mad and, 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 and tired, um, and then we got attacked. Um, and everything was second nature. And so, you know, that level of, of, of driving the crew to that level of performance probably is what saved the ship. And so I've always sort of gone back to think about what was, what was my focus versus his and, and what could I learn from him? So he'd be a great person to bring on. And then Dr. Shattuck, she probably has some science behind some of the firefighter stuff that she could literally apply to what you're doing uh, right now. Absolutely. Well, it's two great suggestions. I'd love to get both of them on if you're able to help. Thank you. Yeah. And have you had Rob on yet? Rob Sweetman? Um, I have, yes. No, Rob, you know, he and I did a paper presentation a couple of years ago um, at one of the engineering forums. 
And, uh, you know, I thought I was going to be kind of the mentor savvy guy. Um, and then I watched him speak and it was just such a passion, um, that goes back to his experience in the military and losing his friend and, and what he's doing now, um, that, uh, I think he'd be great. No, absolutely. No, he, he was incredible. And that's just it. You know, we, so we're, we're recording this now and I'm, I'm not meaning to get political in any way, shape or form, but I made a comment earlier about, you know, there's 330 million people on, in this country. And, and right now, this is purely my own personal opinion. I don't think that the two best leaders in this country are the ones that we're having to choose from. And, you know, I'm very biased because I get to speak to these amazing people and yourself and, you know, Robert and all these other great minds. They have solutions to so many of the issues that we see out there. So, you know, I'm just proud that I, regardless of politics, I just get to, to bring some of these amazing minds, yours and his and everyone else that's been on here to the, you know, to the audience so that they can at least learn <laughs> through all the white noise that's going on at the moment. No, I mean, I've always, my uncle used to say, you know, I could walk down to Walmart and grab 50 people and have less criminals than if I walked into the, you know, Senate or the Congress. <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, I don't know. It, it's a, uh, it's a weird world we live in. Um, but, uh, I definitely, you know, there's a lot of good folks out there, a lot of good ideas. And, uh, I appreciate the opportunity to share some. I hope this, uh, I hope this resonates with some folks and uh, I hope that we're able to kind of work together at some point. No, absolutely. I'd love that. So one more closing question before we make sure where people can find you if they want to reach out. What do you do to decompress when you want to unwind? Um, the biggest thing I do right now is I start every day with a long walk. We live next to the intracoastal waterway. And so it's about a 15 minute walk down to the water. So uh, on the ship, um, my goal every day underway was to watch the sun come up and to watch the sun go down because there's some incredible sunsets and sunrises out to sea. The closest I get here is out on the dock watching it come up. Um, so that's my daily routine. Um, I paint, uh, uh, play the guitar. Um, my wife is incredibly talented. She has opened, I think, four businesses through her our marriage and crafts from, from beading to knitting Um and, uh, and so we are constantly doing something, uh, you know, kind of our European nature, I think, is, uh, you know, you name it, from painted furniture to, to knitting caps to making beaded jewelry. I taught wire wrapping stones for a while. So uh, really a broad range of stuff to kind of, you know, turn off the, the, uh, the work spigot. Uh, I think you have to have that, you know, I think you have to have something that you can let your mind focus on something else. Um, you know, the, mind, the new term is mindfulness, I guess, right? Absolutely. Just being present. Yep. Yep. But, uh, you know, physical exercise again, and, uh, and then, you know, sort of enjoying whatever you can around your surroundings is, is critical. Brilliant. All right. Well then the last question, if people want to reach out to you or learn more about you or your work, where are the best places on the internet to look? Um, probably LinkedIn. Uh, I'm a little bit on Facebook, but uh, we've sort of shut that down other than just kind of watching what, what scrolls past uh, in an occasional food picture. But uh, uh, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. Um, and so that's probably the best place. I've met some incredible people through LinkedIn and, and, uh, and, uh, and, and networked and then, and then taken it to some other conversations. So happy to talk about, you know, certainly I'll talk about this topic with anybody. Um, but uh, 
help a lot with military transitions. You know, one of our teammates, uh, a gentleman named Jeff Bacon, another guy that would be great to have on. So Jeff was a Navy captain who for 30 years wrote cartoons or drew cartoons that were published weekly in Navy Times that just made incredible fun of the Navy. And he kept his himself anonymous. Um, and so uh, he has a great legacy there. And now um, he started a foundation to help wounded warriors get back to nature and, and go do go learn camping skills and hiking and stuff like that. He lives up in Washington State, I think. Um, and I can connect you with Jeff. He'd be another great person to have on the show. That'd be amazing. Yeah, there's a, there's a gentleman, Paul Coombs, who's actually retired, and he's probably the Jeff Bacon of the fire service. Though he wasn't anonymous, but I don't know how well received he was by his own fire department, but he was loved by the rest of the <laughs> the international <laughs> firefighters. But yeah, he was brutal with his cartoons, but it was true. It needed to be said. So, and it's amazing how powerful one picture can be to you know portray an entire message. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, and Jeff was a big piece of the whole operational stress control uh trying to use humor to sort of decompress so you know great guy but uh, you know linkedin and uh and then kind of go from there fantastic well john i want to say thank you so much it's been a great conversation when we talked about doing this i told you it was 90 minutes but it may well bleed over and i was right (laughs) we're almost (laughs) at two hours um but yeah i mean again another perspective from you know a, a, a true leader in in a different organization than the one that i inhabited but you know so many parallels so many crossovers so thank you so much for taking the time and uh you know speaking to the audience today Hey, no trouble. Um, I really appreciate it, and I appreciate the uh, the feedback. And uh, you know, thanks for what you're doing. Um, I just almost set fire to the house just yesterday. So uh, <laughs> the, the last piece of advice I'll give everybody: if you don't have a fire extinguisher in your kitchen, uh, it's a mistake. We we had something in the microwave, and I hit the timer. I hit the I hit the microwave instead of the timer button. Uh, and zapped some plastic and, and paper that was in the microwave just sitting there. And I looked up and suddenly there's flames shooting out. And uh, so now my kitchen's covered in white powder, but at least the house didn't burn down. So, um, so every man's a firefighter, right? 